you got to write a check, right? If you're if you're not writing a check, you're not a very useful investor. So uh, I think it's it's important that those of us who are investors and the individual angels in the region are being clear and open about where they want to play, how, and at what level. But assuming that there's money to be uh, invested and that there's a fit between investor and company, I think it really comes down to how we as investors can help entrepreneurs be more successful. In some cases, it's just getting out of the way, right? It's, uh, and it's us getting out of the way and in some cases helping to remove barriers for the company. Let's discover the Cleveland entrepreneurial ecosystem. We are telling the stories of its entrepreneurs and those supporting them. Welcome to the Lay of the Land podcast, where we are exploring what people are building in Cleveland. I'm your host, Jeffrey Stern, and on today's show, we're swinging the startup pendulum from the world of founders back to the world of funders, and we're talking investing. For this conversation, I had the pleasure of speaking with Todd Fetterman, who is the managing director over at North Coast Ventures, which recently rebranded from North Coast Angel Fund. Today, North Coast comprises a Cleveland-based investor group that includes over 300 individual investors, includes six funds, and has closed more than $65 million of capital in 60 early-stage companies since 2007. Prior to joining North Coast, Todd launched a consumer packaged goods company of his own called One With Nature, and had worked for a technology consulting company called Diamond Cluster. We cover a lot of topics that we have explored on the show from the perspective of Cleveland entrepreneurs, but this time from the perspective of investors. I really enjoyed this conversation with Todd and working through his understanding of the Cleveland startup space, and I hope you all do as well. Before we, we dive straight into the, the world of investing, I, I did want to start with just a, an exploration of your own entrepreneurial journey and, and really your own personal interest in startups and, and what kind of ultimately drew you to the world of investing. Absolutely. So um, well, thanks for having me. And you know, I've always been in the entrepreneurial world, uh, my own and other people's. I think the experience you're referring to is one with Nature, which is a company that I co-founded. It's very different than the kinds of companies that we invest in today. It's a personal care products company. So physical, bar soap, lotion, body wash, bath salts. And we put it through distribution. So it uh, went through probably 40 points of distribution, sold into 4,000 retail stores, and kind of gave me the experience of building a real product, a, a real brand. In retrospect, making some terrific decisions, some terrible decisions, some good hires, some bad hires, right? Along the way, you learn a lot. And uh, being able to see consumers react to what you put in the market was just a lot of fun. And I think that's something that I've you know, taken into uh, North Coast and the startup world here and really just an ethos for you know, you kind of learn from the customer, you learn from the real world. And as terrific as you think what you put out there is, if people aren't picking it up off the shelf or in a software world, they're not clicking and buying, it's obviously not as good as you thought. And it doesn't mean it's over. It just means back to the drawing board. Yeah. And so at what point through your own you know, entrepreneurial journey, did you realize that investing in other founders and startups was something that you wanted to pursue? Well, after, I went to, to business school. After business school, I worked for a technology strategy firm, Diamond Cluster out of Chicago, and spent time with some 
healthcare companies, uh, Time Warner in New York, AOL in DC, and especially at AOL, I spent time with a lot of startups in their ecosystem, right? So all of their premium services, a company like AOL was partnering with billing players, you know, UI players, ad networks, right? There's a, a whole host of people in that ecosystem. I just really enjoyed that culture, that style, and, you know, getting to, to go out and, and partner with them. And when I came back to Cleveland, I didn't expect a, you know, a lot necessarily of doing something like that here. I was still flying back and forth to DC for AOL mm-hmm. every week, but I met some people doing early stage investing. I spent more time with people with startups here, and there was more here than I thought. So you know, it just seemed like a lot of fun, something I couldn't really resist and wanted to uh, dive into. Yeah. So let's talk about about North Course uh, Ventures and. Really what I want, I want to start with there, because I think we can kind of hit some of the more macro ideas here, is you know, recently North Coast has rebranded from formerly North Coast Angels to North Coast Ventures today. And I would love to get you know, how you think about the difference between venture capital and angel capital in a startup ecosystem and, and what this kind of shift means for the organization and for what you guys are trying to do going forward. Yeah, I'll start with the shift. I think sometimes when you rebrand something, you're rebranding because you're indicating where you want to go in the future. And sometimes you're indicating the changes you've already made and you want your your brand and your name and your look and your feel to reflect who you've become. And for North Coast, it really was the latter. So over, I'd say, the first five years of our growth, we were uh, in experimenting mode. We were trying to figure out what we were good at, trying to figure out where the opportunities were. We made a lot of really good investments. We made some bad investments. We gave some helpful advice to some companies, probably some unhelpful advice to others. And we built an experience set, which I think allowed us to be more uh, successful. It allowed us to attract better investors, people who could really add value, industry expertise, functional expertise. It allowed us to attract more competitive companies. And as we did that, we found we had really kind of transcended in our operations from an angel group to closer to uh, a VC. And by that, I mean our uh, professional management had grown. We were uh, co-leading or syndicating deals with early stage VCs and other groups across the Midwest. And uh, we were raising larger amounts of capital. So we'd gone from funding companies in million dollar rounds, in some cases to two to five or more. And we had built a, a small venture fund where we were deploying money at the half million or million dollar level. So before we knew it, we kind of looked more like a, an early VC. We were still doing seed investing, but that's really why we wanted to make sure that there was kind of a uniformity to our name and how we presented ourselves to encompass both the seed investing and the little later stage work that we do. You know, to your question on the distinction with VC and angel, mm-hmm. in some ways, there are a lot of similarities, right? There are people investing capital in early stage companies. But that's really where it stops. You know, angels are investing their own capital. VCs are investing primarily other people's capital. Uh, Angels could have a whole host of different motivations, right? They may just like the founder. They may like an industry. They may like to give back and venture. They may be a purely for-profit motive. For VCs, they need to drive return to their LPs to have another fund. So it's really a different mindset. And I think you probably see more uniform culture and style from VCs than you may from angels, where in reality, if you've, if you've met one angel, you've met one angel. <laughs> right. They're all quite different. Structurally, though, 
uh, when you look at you know the just the the breakup of what North Coast Ventures looks like today, coming from you know a, a syndicate of of angel LPs, is the structure of the fund still the same in terms of the LPs and the breakdown of that? It's similar, and we really started as a fund from day one. So of the three to 500 angel groups in the country, most of them are clubs. They're organizations of people who connect. They look at deals together. They talk about deals together, but they make individual decisions. From day one, we were a contributed capital fund. So if you look at our founding documents, the the LP agreement that investors sign, it really looks more like a venture fund. So our individual investors, many of them continue to invest with us today. But whereas in the first fund, we had people investing at $25,000 or $50,000, today we have people in the fund who are at a half million, a million, and upwards of a couple million dollars. So it's a different level of investment, and it allows us to deploy more capital into the ecosystem. And I think it reflects people's greater comfort with the economic proposition that we had. At the beginning, I'm sure everyone wanted us to be successful. They wanted to see this kind of activity in the region, but they probably weren't willing to write larger checks until they started to see some of these uh, companies grow and started to better understand the story for why we could all be successful. Yeah. So, so one of the things that you actually had just mentioned before we, we hopped on the mic here was the importance of, you know, fundamentally, there needs to be this alignment of investors and startups in the larger startup community for, for there to be a thriving startup community. You know, just some, some personal reflections here. Over the last, you know, five years thinking a lot about startups, just that being what I am currently pursuing, and, and the role that investors play in that endeavor. To me, you know, startups are ultimately some kind of bet that the, the future will be radically different than the present in, in some capacity. And they are valuable on the way up because effectively they are some call option on that future coming true. And investors get to get in and invest at a discount to that future state where the reality converges with that vision of the startup in a successful scenario. And you know, one day they might become those giant cash gushing businesses that we all, you know, hear about and 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 strive for in this space that we're we're working in, but not not in the present moment and uh, not often that that's the case. But the goal is really to grow and explore and earn the right to keep growing and exploring. And so it takes this alignment, I think, of vision from both the investors and the, the founders in the space to, to support startups. And so with that kind of context and framing, I want to go a little deeper on you know, the role uh, that you feel early stage investors play and, and what really makes a good, sta- a good early stage investor. That's a it's a fair question, and I think a lot of people would answer it differently. I'll I'll kind of answer it from maybe the entrepreneur's perspective first, which is you got to write a check, right? If you're <laughs> if you're not writing a check, you're not a very useful investor. So uh, I think it's it's important that those of us who are investors and the individual angels in the region are being clear and open about where they want to play, how, and at what level. But assuming that there's money to be uh, invested and that there's a fit between investor and company, I think it really comes down to how we as investors can help entrepreneurs be more successful. In some cases, it's just getting out of the way, right? It's uh, And it's us getting out of the way and in some cases helping to remove barriers for the company. We like to think that these early stage companies uh, should have boards that you know, there should be a level of governance, but that ultimately it's uh, the team and the founders who are leading and driving the, the, the strategy and the vision of the company. 
Many of our investors will have uh, that industry and functional expertise. And in my mind, that's where you really add value. So just two hours ago, we were on an investment screening call and we were uh, working with a, uh, a company that has an ERP system for a very specific vertical. And on our call, the person leading the questions was Tim Reynolds, who you know recently sold his company Tribute, which was a vertical ERP system. And it's owned by private equity. He spends time with this private equity trying to build the platform for vertical ERP systems. So Tim knows more in his little finger about this space than you know I do in you know, my 10 plus years uh, of doing that. So sometimes it's up to a group like us to find the right people who will provide that industry expertise. But to hear him talk about it, it was really powerful to watch him and the entrepreneur. She immediately gravitated, I think, to, to some of those perspectives and he had more credibility. So I guess our hope is that, you know, the individual investors will play where they're the strongest and that they'll back off and let things develop in areas where they're not strong. Hmm. I think we could take it from there to, to talk specifically about Cleveland and, you know, how how we are, like, you know, kind of taking stock of the, the Cleveland startup ecosystem. You know, what, what in your mind are, are we doing well here? And we'll, we'll start there. You know, we have some really interesting founders here in town. There's a, a group, many of them are people who've been repeat founders. The CEO of Actual, for example, right, a, a Charlie uh, Lougheed, his experience at Explorus was instrumental to him getting his next company funded as early as he did. So Charlie was able, because of that experience set, to break the rules of how basically pre-seed companies get funded. Because of his background, because he'd started and run companies, and because he'd run a company in a sufficiently similar space, had a ton of credibility and had no trouble raising $3 million like that. So I'd say, you know, that's, that's an asset, having people like that. One of the downsides is that if you don't have that background, mm-hmm. you need a lot more traction. You need a lot more demonstration. And in some ways, it's probably unfair, right? Because in, in some ways, it's a, a loss for us because we're missing opportunities to invest in people a little bit earlier. But also, you know, after doing this as long as I have, and you see all the different ways companies can and do fail Sometimes when there's a team that doesn't have as much experience, doesn't have as much understanding of the market problem they're trying to solve, you just want to see another card or two on the table. You want to see things at a little later stage. So I think that's, that's one of the, the things we, we go back and forth with in, in the region. And we'd love to have more entrepreneurs, more startups. I think the, the volume is low. For a group like ours that looks at deals in Columbus and Cincinnati, I'm not sure we're moving the right direction on volume. Over the past couple of years, I think that's a challenge. We'd like to see uh, more of that. But there's also some you know, quality sources of capital, both for-profit and nonprofit, that are here that I think provide a, a baseline level of support. And then you know, lastly, on the VC side, it's few and far between, right? We, we don't have very many VCs here. Can companies get funded at the seed level? Absolutely, right? I mean, we've, we've made invested in 60-some companies and we invest in a, a subset of the, the companies that are here. So right. you know, it's certainly uh, doable, but I'd love to see more capital. I'd love to see more co-investors and I'd love to see us all doing more things to try to attract some capital from the coast. You know, in some of our most successful deals, 
you know, we've got Sequoia in a deal, General Catalyst in a deal, Graycroft in a deal. It, it happens, right? It, it's, it's not that it doesn't happen. It's just not as frequent as uh, we'd like to see. And I think we probably all need to get a little bit better at getting companies to the point where they're going to be more successful attracting coastal capital. Yeah, so you, you introduced a few threads there that I, I definitely want to pull on uh, and explore more. I'll, I'll kind of outline the ones that I heard, and, and we can start with maybe the, the startup quantity. But I really, especially in comparison to some of the other cities you mentioned, even just here in, in Ohio, but also the coastal cities as well, I want to touch on that idea of the, the quantity, maybe the difference in valuations and the difference as well from the investor perspective of kind of risk aversion and you know, the stage of capital that we have available in those cities. But, but starting with, with quantity, I can empathize with, <laughs> with the sentiment that there's not the abundance of, of startups that we, we have here as there, there are in, in some of the other startup ecosystems that I think more people are familiar with, the Bay Area, New York City. But I want to kind of dive in here because it's kind of this, this chicken and egg problem, but, but how, how do you think we surmount it? Because obviously I would love as well for there to be more of both sides of that equation, but, but how do you think it is that we actually get over, over that hurdle? Yeah, well, we'd love to see more sparks. So it's not all incubators, but talk about incubators for a moment. So Cleveland does not have a traditional incubator program right now, right? What Venture for America is doing is really cool, really interesting. It's a couple of year program and it goes into different cities. We don't have a Techstars. We don't have a, a generator affiliate here. I think Cincinnati has seven, <laughs> seven right now. So that's one of the ways companies get created or at least incubated. And without those early resources, I think it's just harder for people to, to start something. Uh, you know, I refuse to believe, though, that, you know, there aren't 100 people at Highland, at Progressive, at Key, at OEC, at MRI, right? All of these medium to larger size companies working on really cool things with great insights into their industry that the larger company is not interested in, Right. I know VCs in the Bay Area who will go to the Uber cafeteria to look for deals, right? Because they'll just talk to people and all those people want to start something. So right. there's a little something missing here in, in the water, right? That, that everybody isn't quite drinking and seeing. And without that, that catalyst of something starting, it's really hard. Now, I, I think many of the highest potential opportunities are getting funded. Obviously, I sit in a position where I may or may not have a bias on that. So I, I will <laughs> acknowledge that. And, and the whole uh, valley of death, you know, depends on where you sit, right? You sit in a slightly different place, you see the valley of death slightly differently. But it, there is so much capital in the region, right? The, the capital is not the problem. We need to get people to uh, get excited about the opportunities to reimagine how they might deploy capital and, and to also try to get our institutions here in Cleveland to be the uh, LP investors in the funds that are based here. So most institutional venture capital, the risk of stating the obvious, institutional venture capital is funded by institutions. So we need our institutions here, which have tens of billions of dollars on the balance sheet to support venture capital funds that are investing here in the area. And if that doesn't happen, we're just a massive net exporter of venture capital. It's not unique to Cleveland. It happens in a lot of cities in the Midwest, but that's one of the things we need to change. 
Yeah, and I think it's kind of the perfect bridge to talk about kind of the difference in capital, the that risk aversion, and and maybe the difference in valuations that we're seeing. But to to get on the other side of that coin, you know, it just in my experience watching you know startup ecosystems across the country and in cities like the ones we've mentioned already, that it seems apparent to me like the true source of that early stage capital that that really thrives is. It comes from liquidity events of other startups, right? Angels who have made their initial wealth from founding or growing a startup of their own understand the game that other founders are playing because they've yes. played it themselves. And they want to keep playing it because they like it. And angel investing is ultimately the the vehicle to continue that 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 journey by investing in other entrepreneurs. And so yeah, I just I think a lot about this chicken and egg problem because we need kind of we need to kind of build it at the same time, it really kind of needs to, to come together. But that's what's been really one of the exciting things about just the podcast and exploring people who are building things here is, you know, the, the amount of companies, at least just in the last five years that are getting past that series A mark here, I it feels like at least anecdotally is, is on the rise. I think it is. You know, we're seeing a lot of companies get to that point where, you know, sometimes a million, two million is that magic number where you can raise a larger round, but then you think about how you grow your team from 15 to 40, right, over the next 18 months. And with those additional resources, if depending on the industry you're in, now keep in mind, we tend to uh, invest in B2B software, but in those industries, it's kind of a math problem, right? You know, there's a customer acquisition cost and you know your margins. We're happy to uh, invest in money losing enterprises as long as the customer acquisition cost and the gross margin give you a reason to believe in the future. And uh, if we can demonstrate those things at the seed level, we'll have success attracting Series A capital. Yeah, no, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. So we'll, we'll use that to, to transition to, to the, yeah, this idea of risk aversion and valuation. And again, my, my sense just from participating in some funding rounds here in Cleveland and watching you know, fellow founders go through that process here as well is that just at a high level, the perspective I've gotten and, and the take that I, I take from others is that Cleveland, effectively, there's this hesitation to give out the rich, inflated, indefensible valuations that you see in the Bay Area or in New York City. And so I'll, I'll throw like my devil's advocate hat in the ring for a sec. And the argument could definitely be made that you actually maybe need those high valuations to support a critical density of early stage startup creation. And so I'd love to get your perspective on how how you think about valuation here in Cleveland and what, and if you think there's something that needs to be done to lessen that disparity between what we're seeing in those larger startup ecosystems and where we are right now. So feel free to throw something at me, you know, through the Zoom here, but I don't, tr- I don't think about valuation as much as, you know, you might think a, a VC might. I mean, our, mm-hmm. our view is we only lead half the deal. So half the deals, the valuation is evaluation. You know, there's a, a lead investor uh, they've put that on the table. We're either in or we're out. And in in that case, we just want to get into the the deals that we think will be really successful. Right, right. It's, right. You know, it's pretty basic. In the companies that that we're leading the round, we want to get also into those deals that we think will be really successful, and we want to make sure that the paper we're leading with, right, that term sheet, will be uh, appropriate and attractive enough to attract other capital. Because we're a small investor, we don't fully subscribe any round. So we need other co-investors. 
if there's more capital, it does two things. It makes it easier for us to syndicate rounds, making it possible for valuations to go up a little bit. And it probably provides some more competition to us to get into the best deals. So I think it really is a, a supply and uh, demand function. We are uh, thrilled to invest in more expensive deals that we think are more likely to be successful or are further down the path to be successful. You know, there are companies where, you know, the, the Series A it is meaningfully large enough that you know how it's going to drive the valuation. So I, I think in some cases, you know, you probably look at, you know, PitchBook and Fenwick and West and right, all the other sure, data sure. sources <laughs> out there. But if you, you kind of throw out the, the, the averages, right, because the means are influenced by these crazy valuations on the outside, and you look at the medians, you know, we're definitely off by 20, 30 percent, but it's not 100 percent we're off by. Right, so, right. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll give you that the valuations here are lower, could be higher. And if they were higher, maybe we would get into some deals we're not. But nobody pays the price more than the investors who lose those deals. So we assess every time we lose a deal that we wanted to be in. And we assess every time a company is wildly successful that we didn't get into. And, you know, we don't want valuation to be the difference. So, for you know, for what it's worth, I don't think it's just that you know, investors here don't think they need to pay more or investors here aren't willing to pay more. I think it's a, a function of supply, demand, ease, and what people are used to. But what a fund like ours, one other thing I'll mention is that even at our seed fund, we like to invest in our best companies three or four times. So the first valuation is just the first valuation, right? It's, it's not necessarily the most important valuation. And as we've invested more in follow-on, that's changed our view on valuation. So I would say we're less sensitive. People probably would have wanted to throw things more at us at the very beginning, right? Because we are probably more valuation-focused, more terms-focused. I think we've probably learned a little bit and take a bigger-picture approach today. When, when you're evaluating companies at, at the stages you are in, and thinking through their likelihood of success and growth, what are the risks that you're willing to take as an investor? And what, what do you want to see founders have de-risked? So whether they de-risk it or we are just de-risking it from our own knowledge and homework, we want to be sure that the problem they're addressing really exists. And that's something that often falls apart under scrutiny, right? When you talk to potential customers, you talk to people in the industry, you realize the status quo isn't so bad, the substitutes and the competitors aren't so bad, and that a product, you know, there's always room for a new, better product. It's just a product has to be a lot better for it to really support a startup investment. So I, I think that's, that's one of the areas of risk that we don't want to take, right? It's just validating a market. We're absolutely willing to take commercial risk. Uh, we don't generally take a lot of technology risk. But it's more so because we're just not investing in cutting edge tech, right? I mean, we're, we're investing in companies that are using M, uh, AI and ML and you know, other cool technologies, but it's generally solving problems that have been solved just in different industries, different ways, different monetization models. You know, we're not looking at an all new video compression technology that no one's ever done before. So I'd say that kind of tech risk is probably something that we don't like to do. We don't, you know, traction is a funny thing, right? And I think that's probably the knock on Midwest uh, investors that they expect too much traction. And that's could be could be fair. 
I think we at least want to get a whiff of product market fit. We want to get a, a sniff that, hey, there might be something there. There's some customers we can talk to, one or two, right? Give me one or two customers that love what you do. You know, we don't need a hundred. We don't need uh, renewals. We don't need white papers. But if we can't talk to somebody who says what you've built for them is changing their world and that they buy into the vision, that's probably a risk we don't want to take. Right, right. And when you mentioned that maybe a, a predominant focus on some of the B2B SaaS play, but, but more you know, high level, is there a thematic approach that you guys are taking? What is the kind of high level strategy and, and thesis, if you will, from an investing perspective? Well, in most cases, we're doing something vertical. So we're, we're doing something that applies to a specific industry and beachhead first. It may be applicable horizontally, but it's typically not a horizontal play right out of the gate, like a CRM might right be something that's super broadly applicable. And so there's a known entry point, a known pain point, an addressable customer base that for us we think is sufficiently attractive to deploy a couple million dollars against at the early stages. And it's going to be bigger than a breadbasket, right? So we want to be able to uh, invest in companies that we think are in, you know, half billion, billion dollar industries that uh, have the potential to double every year. Right? If a company doesn't have the potential to double every year, it's probably just not a venture path company. Got it. I- I'm curious because you mentioned you kind of take stock of the, you know, the deals that you didn't necessarily get into. I feel like I've come across the term an anti-portfolio before. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, what, what, what does that look like for you? And, and what are some of the reflections and learnings that you've taken from that anti-portfolio? Well, what's, what's interesting is several of, of the, the companies, as we look back, well, I'll, I'll, say, I'll say this a couple, a couple different ways. First, I truly wish there were more companies in the anti-portfolio. I think if, uh, <laughs> if, if the region and the state had a more robust startup ecosystem, there'd be 20, right? So Bessemer is the VC famous for their anti-portfolio and they miss deals like Apple and LinkedIn. You know, we don't have a lot of those here. You know, Cover My Meds was, you know, probably the, the biggest deal in the state. When they went out for funding, they ran a small convertible note round. Some people who were close to the company invested, Jumpstart invested. They weren't widely out circulating for a round. You know, we, we didn't diligence them and walk away. And I think what, what those founders probably would have told you was that Cover My Meds at the pre-seed stage probably wasn't screaming, this is going to be a billion-dollar company, right? Just like Apple probably wasn't screaming, it was going to be a billion-dollar company. So, you know, you look for those signals of uh, great teams, right? Teams that you just don't want to walk away from. People who are crazy smart, who are crazy committed, who are just going to do what it takes uh, to win, who are ultra-high integrity, who you feel you can count on and bet on. I'd say as we look at some of the deals that we would have liked to be in in retrospect, uh, those are probably the common denominators that we see. And I'm hopeful that as you know, we continue to grow, there are more great startups, that the number of deals that we're in that win and are successful will be balanced by many in that anti-portfolio. And uh, I think that's just an indicator of being in a robust ecosystem. Yeah, I'll let I'll let you fill in the the flip side of that and speak to some of the the companies that have really 
kind of sparked inspiration and along their success. What are some of the the companies, both now that you would you know keep an eye on, but also just in in the past of your investment portfolio that have really you know impressed you here in Cleveland? You know, there there are a bunch. You know, one of the companies I'm most excited about is a company that started in Cleveland, went to New York, and is now back in Cleveland, uh, and that's Remesh. Remesh is a, a company where the, the founders were just rock solid, committed, and had a vision. We were confused by that vision at the very beginning, right? <laughs> it, was, it was so broad. It was uh, peacekeeping. It was using this, what be- eventually became a market research platform to solve some real problems in the world. So I don't think we got it initially. They went through uh, flash charts here. They went to Techstars. Uh, we invested in a, a round, a $3 million VC round. So we were around them when they had, you know, five, six people in the company, $10,000 a month in revenue. We got to see that vision and that commitment turn into $100,000 a month in revenue. And at that point, you say, okay, there's, there's something here, right? They're, uh, they've delivered a product. Their customers are buying the product. They seem to be getting good feedback. It seems to be differentiated. And they go out and raise a $10 million Series A. And they hire a bunch of smart people, right? The vision gets sharper. You get a little more inspired by that team, right? Because now there's a VP layer, right? There's there's not just the founders. There's a whole group. And after a couple of years, they're at a million dollars a month. And you realize, wow, the companies that were buying, you know, $250,000 a year are now buying a million dollars a year. And you see just how a company like that stayed true to what they wanted to build. And that, that was really cool to see. You know, they, they've still got a lot of work to do. They're, they're growing, they're raising capital. I think they hired 40 people last quarter. So they're, they're, they're growing like crazy. And for us, it's, it's you know, one of our very best uh, companies. But you know, that's the kind of company vision team we would love to see more of. And I am 100% sure that the family tree of that company will turn out to be uh, really uh, rich over the next couple of years and that we'll see multiple companies founded from it. And one of these days we'll be hanging out in the Remesh cafeteria uh, trying to uh, find great deals. Yeah. I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about the shift to remote over the last year. And you know, we've talked about it and thought about it a lot from a company perspective, but I would love to get your take on it from the perspective of investing. Are you now competing for deals that you weren't before? How has it kind of played out from the investing landscape over the last year? Yeah, I think it's probably been hardest and most relatable just as human beings, right? Who are trying to live our lives personally and professionally in this new world. You know, we've had all these relationships and companies and groups and friends and boards that we were active with, right? We would sit down with companies regularly and to not be able to do that uh, is a challenge. The culture doesn't just switch over to virtual. It's, it's been as tough on us as it has been on many people, just in terms of, you know, personally, professionally trying to manage it. But I'd say for the most part, you know, VCs have been less impacted. We can kind of walk out of the office with our laptops, still have the kinds of conversations we want to, but you lose the personal. You can't walk around with your co-investors. You can't have in-person board meetings. For diligence, you stare at a person on a screen and you don't have the tells, right, that 
as a human being, you've learned how to work with people and assess people and understand what you're hearing and why, why things are a certain way. So it's really tough to have the same spidey sense virtually that you'd like to think you do uh, in person. So it's, it's been a loss. There's no question that it, it hurts all of us. Now, I don't think we've lost deals because of it, because in most parts of the country, investors are impacted in the same way. At our stage, seed deals, most seed deals are still funded by people in their backyard. We'd love to see more companies here in Cleveland working with seed VCs from across the country. We'd like to co-invest with seed VCs from across the country too. We've seen some of that, but not a ton. I think what it's going to take there is not a pandemic, but really uh, substantive relationship building so that uh, they have a reason to invest time and energy in people who are not in their backyard. Because in places like you know, the Bay Area, New York, but also Boulder, Austin, even D.C., there are so many startups on the ground there. I just don't think those seed VCs have a tremendous incentive to look elsewhere. Yeah. I'll, I'll double down here on, on the pandemic yeah. questions. I know they don't age as well, but um, I, I am just really curious, you know, given the exposure you have to the portfolio companies you're working with, how have they fared over the last year? What, what have you kind of seen across the board? So uh, we've gotten lucky is the, the short answer. Uh, one, because we invest primarily in B2B software. Those companies have not been as influenced uh, by the pandemic as others. They have uh, more stable customer bases, recurring revenue, and, and simply uh, a more repeatable, scalable acquisition model. So that's been fortunate. We've also been lucky because we our B2B SaaS companies are not invested in areas that are particularly impacted by the pandemic. So travel, sports, entertainment. So I think portfolio-wise, we got lucky. And we got lucky because we primarily invest in B2B SaaS. Those companies are a little bit more resilient. They have uh, stable recurring revenue streams. They tend to have uh, more repeatable, scalable models for customer acquisition. And fortunately for us, we had relatively little exposure to companies that sold into the most affected industries, right? Travel, entertainment, sports. Uh, One of our businesses, Navistone in Cincinnati, turns out that a quarter of their business was travel. And obviously that part of the business was slow, but the company was growing meaningfully in other areas. So they still had an up year. It just wasn't uh, as attractive as we might've hoped. That's good to hear. Closing out here, one of the things I, I did want to get your your perspective on, more from the, the founder's perspective, but from seeing all the pitches that come through, is what do you see from the founders who run really great fundraising processes, and, and how is it that they tell their stories in a way that resonates and, and, and makes you want to invest alongside them? Yeah, I think it's a, a couple things. One is that there's a there there, right? So it's not smoke and mirrors. It's not just a story. You understand who this person is, why they're doing what they do, why they're passionate about the challenge, and ultimately why they're going to be successful, right? The pieces and parts just have to fit into the story for why that company wins. And they have to present that in a compelling way. And it's not about theater, but it's about being able to have confidence as an investor that they'll talk to you the same way they'll talk to the employees they're trying to recruit the same way they'll talk to their potential customers, right? They've got to paint an attractive picture 
that causes lots of people to want to get involved with them, not just uh, the investors. And then lastly, you know, they've got to be able to execute. There's just nothing uh, better than being followed up with when someone says they're going to follow up, sending what they said they're going to send, being consistent. So I think the founders that are just focused on delivering and delivering in a credible way and wanting you to be part of their mission, that gives you a sense of, I don't want to miss this, right? This could be the real deal. And when you feel that, you end up leading forward. You know, you end up getting your checkbook out and more often than not, you end up investing in the company. Yeah. So to actually uh, close down here, you know, one of the the things that we ask everyone on the show is as we try and paint a, a collective collage here of not necessarily people's favorite things in Cleveland, but things that other people may not know about. So with that, I'll, I'll ask you about, you know, what are, what are some of your favorite hidden gems here in Cleveland? Well, I'll give you a, a different one because I'm guessing you've probably heard a lot of interesting restaurants, places to visit uh, and things like that. And I would just say that the hidden gem of Cleveland from an entrepreneur's perspective is the enormously accessible leadership level of the city. And that is that if you tell your story in the right way and you work to get to the right people, you can open just about any door. If you want to get to the right people of civic leadership, political leadership, corporate leadership, people are willing to have these conversations. People like to make introductions. They like to share interesting stories. And I think it's there's just part of Cleveland's culture, which is collegial and uh, collaborative, that helps people make those connections and gives us as investors and gives the entrepreneurs here uh, a leg up if they're willing and able to take advantage. Yep. <laughs> no, did, uh, did the dog, did the dog get it? Oh, I don't, I think it's fine. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's just a conversation, you know, but Todd, if, if, if people have anything they want to follow up with you about, where's the, the best place for them to reach you? Sure. Uh, Todd.Fetterman at North Coast VC. Happy to chat. Right on. Well, Todd, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your perspective on, on the whole ecosystem here. And uh, thank you very much. Happy to. Appreciate it, Jeff. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So shoot us an email at layoftheland at upside.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland, at thetagan, or at sternhefe, J-E-F-E. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please email us or find us on Twitter and let us know. And if you love our show, please leave a review on iTunes. That goes a long way in helping us spread the word and continue to help bring high-quality guests to the show. Taken Horton and Jeffrey Stern developed the Lay of the Land podcast in collaboration with the Up Company LLC. At the time of this recording, we do not own equity or other financial interests in the companies which appear on this show unless otherwise indicated. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Founders Get Funds and its affiliates or actual and its affiliates or any entity which employs us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. We have not considered your specific financial situation nor provided any investment advice on this show. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you.